Hello and welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Today we're going to discuss a few from Broadway, including The Prom, Mike Birbiglia's The New One, and True West with Ethan Hawke and Paul Dano. From the Atlantic Theater Company, a couple of offerings this month, Blue Ridge, starring the always excellent Marin Ireland, and play Eddie and Dave. And a new one from the Transport Group as well, called The Trial of the Catonsville Nine. In addition, at the end, I'll give you a few tips about some upcoming shows and must-sees now that the um, spring season is getting ready to launch in full bloom and there's a lot of openings over the next few months. This podcast is based on my website and blog, www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, musical, or theater company you may not have known about. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts. Now let's get started. First up, the play Blue Ridge at the Atlantic Theater Company. Allison was a teacher in the Blue Ridge school system, but has been ordered by a court to live in a church halfway house. Her romantic involvement with the principal went sour, so she bashed his car in with an axe. The play opens with her arrival to this group, her new home for six months. She carries a truckload of rage, sarcasm, defense mechanisms, and an inability to sit still. As played by the seemingly always superb Marin Ireland, she may be off-putting or even repulsive, but her deeply wrought emotional scars are in full view. The house is run by Hearn, and Grace, played by Chris Stack and Nicole Lewis. They keep the peace, get their charges part-time employment, and run Bible classes where sharing is encouraged. This story takes place in western North Carolina's hillbilly country. The current residents include Sherry and Wade, both dealing with substance abuse problems. What makes Blue Ridge compelling theater is its flawed cast of characters, each of whom is struggling with some personal demon. Directed by Taibi Magar, everyone in this stellar cast adds critical layers of personality and feeling to the spoken words. The play expertly moves time along with simple changes to set decorations, such as Halloween or Thanksgiving, and we watch relationships develop and evolve over that time. Cole, played by Peter Mark Kendall, is the next to arrive after Allison. He appears to be a variation on the dim white young man. Playwright Abby Rosebrock has a lot to say about the treatment of women by men, particularly by those in power. Rather than make this play an easy-to-swallow, one-sided feminist rager, Miss Rosebrock writes much deeper levels of anguish in her character's troubled souls. As a result, the complexities of unraveling their motivations, desires, and dreams continue to surprise and disturb until the very end. Why Blue Ridge? I presume that blue is the mood and ridge signifies an edge, the sharp, dangerous edge on the side of a mountain where these humans are trying to avoid another fall. 
As one might imagine, success does not come easily in this psychological group study of individuals searching for meaning, self-worth, and personal happiness. The Bible is used as a means to help analyze and inspire. Given some of their personal quandaries, I found myself once again convinced that revered book does not have all the answers. This play is not filled with simple exposition. There were some older theatergoers vocally complaining that they did not understand what was happening, particularly in the latter stages. Blue Ridge requires one to pause, to think, to observe, to question, to consider, and to feel a wide range of emotions and thoughts. You will laugh along with this dark comedy. You will also be moved as to why and how difficult it is for some people to safely escape the Blue Ridge. Next up, the new Broadway musical, The Prom. When running for vice president of the United States, Indiana's Mike Pence was accused of supporting gay conversion therapy. Sometimes described as a pseudoscientific practice, this particular treatment uses psychology or spiritual interventions to make young people heterosexual instead of gay. Of course, the medical community is at odds over the effectiveness or morality of such treatment, much like they were last century with lobotomies and electric shock therapy. As a so-called intelligent species, however, we apparently cannot grasp and learn from our historical idiosities, and we retreat into familiar dogma and cringeworthy, uninformed religious fervor. Enter the prom, a light in the loafer's new musical comedy in which a lesbian wants to go to the big dance in her hometown of Edgewater, Indiana. Rather than create a heavy-handed manifesto with this material, the creative team have appropriated hashtag real news headlines to create a fluffy, good-intentioned, often hilarious tale meant to entertain, inspire, teach a little, and send the crowd home happy. I enjoyed this very old-fashioned musical safely ensconced in the liberal world of Broadway. I would definitely pay to see the show on stage in Indiana. As presented here, the Hoosiers, and Midwesterners in general, are predictably satirized as backward thinkers. Nicely balancing this nuttiness are the lessons also learned by the well-meaning, self-absorbed gay activists who flock to this conservative small town to plant rainbow flags. Happily, the do-gooder narcissists are theater people. Two-time Tony winner Dee Dee Allen, played by Beth Level, and the prancing Barry Glickman, played by Brooke Ashmanskas, open the prom as stars of a new show about Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. The reviews are terrible, and the show closes. Along with their stage pals, they concoct a plan to revive their besmirched reputations as self-absorbed divas. There's a high school-age lesbian who wants to go to her prom, but the PTA feels otherwise. With a Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney vibe, the thespians hop a bus to save the day. Or maybe it's save the gay. Broad caricatures, chewed scenery, insider jokes, and big Broadway swagger are proudly and loudly in full bloom throughout this musical. Miss Level's Dee Dee is a grossly exaggerated homage to Miss Level's career as a big personality Broadway star, notably her phenomenal turn as Beatrice Stockwell in The Drowsy Chaperone. Her anthems here, particularly The Ladies Improving, 
are spotlight-grabbing, full-throttle belting showstoppers. Even better is Mr. Ashmanskas as the gayer-than-gay Barry. If you saw him in Something Rotten, his prancing, effeminate buffoonery will not be new. Fortunately, he dials Twinkle Toes up to max, and the result is more than a slice of ordinary ham. It's comic prosciutto. Unearthing his heart of gold amidst the nonstop strutting elevates this whole show considerably. Around these two supernovas are a cluster of talented veterans, most notably Angie Schwarer, who teaches our young lesbian how to add some zazz to her repertoire in a cleverly staged leggy duet. Thankfully for the show, the young lady at the center of the controversy is played by Caitlin Kanunen. She's lovable, grounded, and completely believable in a beautifully realized characterization. Directed and choreographed by Casey Nicolaw, The Prom is a very fun show hovering a few ticks below greatness. The outstanding choreography of the finale hints at what could have been throughout. Much of the book and score by Bob Martin, Chad Beguelin, and Matthew Sklar is very funny. I guffawed aplenty watching this inspired goofiness. The tunes are pretty good, if not grade A memorable. If you are in the mood for a musical comedy, The Prom might be a dance worth attending. If you are from Indiana, have a martini first and laugh with the rest of us. If you are homophobic, perhaps prayer will be a preferable option. But I doubt it will be as much fun. From the big Broadway stages to now the small off-off Broadway incubator of new works at the tank comes Wendell and Pan. From the title of Caitlin Kenny's play Wendell and Pam, the reference is clear. J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, has provided inspiration for many theatrical productions. The most recent ones I recall are Bedlam Theater's dreadful retelling and the underwhelming Broadway musical Finding Neverland. At the arts incubator The Tank, this version takes place in a one-level, two-bedroom house in some tiny town. Wendell is a book-reading nerd whose best friend is Pan. Is she imaginary or not? She certainly is fun, and they have adventures such as pretending to play pirates. He also confides his thoughts and secrets to Pan, seeking advice. His grandfather is very ill and has asked Wendell to kill him. His parents are visibly going through some marital issues and the family environment is chilly. His sister Kayla is busy on her cell phone, leaving voicemail messages which embarrass her. From this beginning, a psychologically complex story unfolds. A question is asked, how come saying one thing can change everything? There is an interesting storyline in Wendell and Pan, but at this stage of its development, the tone is wildly inconsistent. The abrupt shifts from dramatic tension to throwaway comedic one-liners is jarring and undercuts the lurking moodiness which tries to emerge. As directed, the play is also paced too slow and feels overlong. There was a moment when I thought it had ended. What seemed like a nice finish left some mysteries for the audience to consider. Unfortunately, the exposition continued on, was rather tedious, and somewhat repetitive. On the very positive side, the set design by Caitlin Barrett was quite impressive and cleverly laid out. In the small downtown space at the tank, the family and Pan were inside and outside the home, 
up in a treehouse or on a roof. I've seen plays with enormous budgets unable to produce this level of quality and clarity, not to mention that Wendelin Pan has quite a few fantastical elements stuffed into its plot. In addition, Naya Noemi's confident portrayal as Sister Kayla was the standout performance for me. This play wants to embrace the challenges of growing up as in Peter Pan. As the work develops further and the audience reacts, or does not react, to certain lines and scenes, a better, more focused character study may emerge. For now, this interesting multi-generational tale of decisions and ramifications needs a sprinkle of pixie dust in order to fly. It's always a good month when manual cinema comes to town. And right now I want to talk about their newest production, Frankenstein. Manual Cinema's Frankenstein is presented this year as part of the public theater's Under the Radar Festival. For the last 15 years, this organization has provided a high visibility platform to support artists from diverse backgrounds who are redefining the act of making theater. For me, Manual Cinema is far from under the radar as I have seen two of their previous productions, The Extraordinary Ada Ava and Mementus Mori. This particular production significantly upsizes the scope of their work. This company is aptly named Manual Cinema as their work involves creating a movie by hand right in front of the audience. The cinema is black and white silent movies with music. The imagery is projected on a screen using puppetry and actors. In Ada Ava, for example, the movie was created using four overhead projectors shined onto a screen. The entertainment is not only watching the finished, well-directed product, but also the choreography of the puppeteers using their materials. The creativity is awesome to behold. In Frankenstein, they took the four-projector format and added three additional and unique sections, including a stationary camera. The musicians played an original score with numerous instruments, including a five-octave marimba and various implements to create sound effects. Frankenstein needs thunder and lightning, after all. The show was presented in 90 minutes with less than a dozen individuals, some playing multiple roles delineated with a quick wig and costume change. The resulting cinema was detailed, visually arresting storytelling with a gorgeously moody score. A two-dimensional cutout projected on the screen shed a tear, and the emotion registers. The coordination and movement by these artists was jaw-dropping in its complexity. I found myself watching the screen, then focusing on the methods, then marveling at the quality of the music underscoring this silent film. While the visual treats are endless, the storytelling is what makes manual cinema's work so effective. In Frankenstein, they faithfully combine Mary Shelley's famous book with a biography of how she came to create the tale. Add thunder and lightning, and a healthy dash of unspoken witticisms, and voila, a cinematic creature is born. I follow manual cinema and make sure to see their work whenever possible. This production of Frankenstein opened my eyes to their future possibilities. The work is evolving onto a grander scale and continues to be very exciting theater. Ada, Ava, was adorable and should not be missed. Frankenstein is a revelation and, I hope, the launching pad for more greatness and even bigger audiences to come.
This company travels all over the world and repeats many of their productions regularly, and their calendar can be found at www.manualcinema.com. Now we'll head back to the Atlantic Theater and the play Eddie and Dave. I walked into the Stage 2 space of the Atlantic Theater Company to see the world premiere production of Eddie and Dave, not knowing what the play was about. The music playing was Van Halen's classic Running with the Devil. The walls were plastered with rock and roll memorabilia. I saw a Whiskey A Go-Go flyer advertising Blondie on February 3, 1977. The plasmatics were represented, and I recalled the chainsaw flailing of Butcher Baby in my mind. I squinted to see which band was marketed as cooler than fuck. I got up out of my seat to see the ad closer. I had never heard of Big Bang Babies, a 90s glam metal act. As a college radio disc jockey from that period, I am clearly in the theatrical bullseye for this material. You may have already guessed that the title of this play references Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth. If these two rock stars are foreign to you, or perhaps an obscure reference from the past, like Dinah Shore might be to a millennial, then find something else to do. Playwright Amy Statz admits in the program, quote, the only thing real about this play is the author's love for a certain band, unquote. As the MTV VJ narrator, a funny Vanessa Espelaga further informs that Eddie and Dave is a memory play, brightly lit, sentimental, and not at all realistic. As a blogger, I would add, and not at all good. In 1996, Van Halen is presenting an award at the VMAs. Dave had not been on stage with his bandmates in over a decade. Shenanigans ensued, depicted as an onstage fight. Our VJ guiltily lights a cigarette, stating, Such a dirty habit. Nostalgia. The laughs seem promising right from the start. What follows is a tongue-in-cheek biography of the band from their youth to the VMA reunion. While the description of the play might suggest a fictional story, the tedious detail of their history is far from imaginary. Over 90 minutes long, this amateurishly presented skit covers everything from groupies, quote, like fruit flies to a ripe banana, unquote, to Eddie's marriage to Valerie Bertinelli, amusingly embodied and roasted by Omar Abbas Salem. Eddie and Dave are played by Miss Statz and Megan Hill. They capture some of the caricaturized essence of these people, but there is not enough variation to sustain a whole play. If you don't know them beforehand, I presume the mugging will be meaningless. This production was cast with opposite genders. The women play the men, and Mr. Salam is Val, but that potential is not really developed. There are indeed some funny lines early on, but the crickets grew in volume and for long stretches as the play progressed. Fun could potentially be had if this cartoonish sketch was staged in a bar with musical interludes and cocktails. As it stands now, dozens more non-repeated jokes are desperately needed. More characters from the period would also help, as the two non-band members produce the best and funniest moments. Toward the end, our VJ tells us that if you see an aging rock star, remember all things great are inherently ridiculous. Eddie and Dave is definitely ridiculous, but unfortunately, 
not inherently so. Next, I want to discuss another experimental off-off-Broadway piece entitled Space Race. I love to head downtown at Dixon Place and see a performance with a subject that catches my eye. This location is home to a great deal of theatrical experimentation at wallet-friendly prices. Gotta love an artistic director who encourages the audience to grab a drink before or after the show as the proceeds help them continue to support artists in development. This week, I saw Space Race by writer and director Nicholas Gentile. In this broad comedy, the starship Apollo is traveling in low Earth orbit as a vacation cruise liner. The period is the 1960s, when the United States and Russia were in the midst of their heated quest to be the first one to land on the moon. Neil Armstrong, played by David Malinsky, is the captain of this ship, and he's not the brightest. There's a spy on board. His communications person is Olga, a woman with a thick Russian accent, hilariously embodied by Danielle Shimshoni. She avoids his repeated sexual overtures while he flails about attempting to be a leader. The promise of Space Race reminded me of silly SNL skits from the 1970s like Landshark or the Coneheads. When everyone is committed, the goofiness can be truly memorable. Not all the thruster rockets were fully operating in this piece. When the Americans accidentally crash land on the starship Apollo, three iconic astronauts come aboard. Jacques Duvoisin was a solidly pompous Chuck Yeager, the man who was first to exceed the speed of sound in flight. The caricature was dead on serious and very, very good. He was accompanied by Buzz, Michael Caizzi, and Collins, Patrick Harvey, one sporting a brogue and the other a wide-eyed, enthusiastic twinkle toes. All three men were fun to watch. There is an evil senator on this journey, and also a German named Adolf and his feral South American princess, Kutinga. Sarah Galvin was hilarious as this half-animal woman, but she really didn't have enough to do in the plot other than give us feral realness. For Space Race to soar higher, the level of these side characters have to be equaled within the main storyline, which is lightly amusing but not inspired lunacy. Americans and Russians up to no good is prime fodder for our entertainment right now, especially in a light comedic package. A shirtless Russian, the mention of collusion, perhaps a send-up of the Trump-Putin-Helsinki press conference might be worth a try to spice up Space Race a bit. Now we'll head back to Broadway and a show entitled Mike Birbiglia's The New One. I was not familiar with the author and star of Mike Birbiglia's The New One before this show was an off-Broadway hit last year prior to this transfer to Broadway. On a cold January evening, I decided to check out this comedian and see this performance before it closed. Spending time with Mike is warming to the soul. Should you pay Broadway prices? Debatable. Will you get to know Mike and feel entertained? Definitely. Mr. Babiglia is a couch potato. He loves the couch. It's his favorite piece of furniture. You don't just sit in it. The couch hugs you, unlike the bed, which indulgently requires a room to be named after it. Some of the jokes are simple and sweetly funny. Others take us to the prostitutes in Amsterdam, where we hear about an embarrassing yet hilarious experience. After getting to know the self-described unremarkable man, we learn what this show is about, 
His wife, clearly the much better half, wants to have a baby. That's the new one of the title. Hearing a litany of shortcomings for this potential father and also his proclivity to eat pizza until he loses consciousness, Mike gives us a list of seven reasons why he should not be one. The comic monologue takes shape as we consider his sperm count and baby paraphernalia. There are laughs to be had. Parenting is really the woman's domain. Based on personal observation and his own being, Mike's opinion of the male half of the species is that they are generally useless. The new one contains amusing material and is a very pleasant short evening. When I opened the program, I saw that Beowulf Borat was the set designer. He was a Tony winner for the stunning set design for Act One a few years ago. Mr. Borat has now designed 20 Broadway shows, many of them quite complex. The set was cozy for sure, a nice rug and a stool, but why was he called in to do this? Late in the show, we find out, and it's a treat. The new one got its Broadway moment. Hopefully, this show will be filmed for audiences to enjoy in the future, sitting on their couches and getting hugs. The next play, and I'm excited to talk about it, was also at The Tank, where we just reviewed Wendell and Pan a few moments ago. This one's entitled Real. Two stories emerge in Real, a terrific and ambitious new play by the Brazilian playwright Rodrigo Nogueira. One takes place in the present with Dominique, her husband, and two friends chatting during a dinner party celebrating an award she received from her law firm. The other plot concerns Dominic, a young boy at a conservatory who is busy composing a fugue. In music, a fugue is a composition where a short melody is introduced by one part and is successfully taken up by others and developed by interweaving the parts. An outstanding Rebecca Gibble plays Dominique. Dominique played the piano when she was young, but hasn't done so in years. She is now a mother and successful lawyer. She becomes obsessed with a play she is reading as she also begins to question her sexuality and purpose in life. A fugue writes itself in her dreams and she begins playing again. Her conservatively pompous husband believes realism is the strongest poison against dreams. The plotline of the play and the related fugue is the one being written by Dominic. Both Mexican by descent, Dominic and a maid at the conservatory worry about being deported. Between 1929 and 1936, the Mexican repatriation was a mass deportation of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. An estimated 60% were United States citizens. As this movement was based on race and not citizenship, the process meets the modern definition of ethnic cleansing. While this largely untaught historical crime is only a small part of Dominic's story, it remains apropos now. Dominic is a musical genius, and he's beginning to feel trapped in the body of a male. He is portrayed here by Darwin Del Fabro, who is perfect in the role. Dominic's sympathetic professor encourages him to finish the fugue, which is already so brilliant. In a bizarre line, the professor says, I'm so impressed. It's as if a cherry tree grew from my left nipple. Back and forth, these scenes flow, intertwining the passions and dreams of Dominic and Dominique, 
while those around them struggle to comprehend what is going on. The language is highly memorable. Truth is the antidote for hope. Another example, artists undermining the pillars of a sane society. Here, these two musicians are clearly attempting to get in touch with their inner personas. Dominique's reading of the play and dreaming of the music, while Dominique is dreaming of the future and becoming Dominique while composing. All of this meshes together to create a final scene where both stories are combined into a playwriting fugue. Aaron Ortman's superb direction of this play and a fine cast created a mysterious mood as this story unwrapped. The lighting designed by Kia Rogers perfectly framed this dreamscape's two divergent and combining plot lines. A few jokes felt a bit forced, the repeated sex and riding a bicycle one as an example. However, the overall quality of this mesmerizing storytelling and the clarity and presentation made this play great theater. In this particular artistic period, many try to spotlight the internal difficulties for people with gender confusion. We now know that perhaps the best way to understand them is to realize it's all a fugue. After all, the psychiatric definition of a fugue is a loss of awareness of one's identity. At Off-Off-Broadway's The Tank, Real is sure to be one of the most creatively successful productions I will have the opportunity to witness in 2019. And back to Broadway we go with the Roundabout Theater's revival of True West. First staged in 1980, True West is considered a classic play of sibling rivalry. Ghosts of previous productions loom large. The 1982 Steppenwolf Theatre Company production with Gary Sinise and John Malkovich made the play famous. With playwright Sam Shepard's approval, it transferred from Chicago to Off-Broadway. In 2000, Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley were both nominated for Tony Awards in a well-regarded Broadway revival. This is my first opportunity to see this play, so my thoughts are not informed by anything other than its reputation. True West updates the biblical story of Cain and Abel, two brothers whose tensions famously resulted in murder. Cain was punished into a life of wandering. With an unnamed wife, he begat the human race. Successful film star Paul Dano takes on the character of Austin, a seemingly mild-mannered screenwriter who is house-sitting for his mother. His unnamed wife and family are not with him. His drifter brother is Lee, played by another successful film and stage star, Ethan Hawke. Lee has just wandered in from the desert, where he survives off the grid using skills, which include stealing. The differences in these two are stark. One is clean-cut, the other sports a beard. Lee's clothing is stained. It's fairly easy to conjure images of polar opposite brothers. One of mine, for example, is a guard in a maximum security prison, and I write a theater blog. Exploiting inherently oddball scenarios of sibling differences can be a surefire winner. After seeing this production of True West, I cannot grasp what made this play so highly regarded. There can be no doubt that this material must be heaven to an actor. Ethan Hawke is a dynamic Lee, full of bravado and testosterone. He may be the prodigal son, but his eyes register a smoldering intensity of jealousy and self-doubt. The performance is big, accomplished, and entertaining throughout. Mr. Dano's Austin is a milk toast at the beginning of the play. The brother connection isn't really believable, 
which may be intentional. The personality bypass, though, required to carry this story arc into Crazy Town doesn't work. The brothers are Cain and Abel, after all, and bad things are bound to happen. Both actors have to be able to levitate this material from passive-aggressive fraternal opposites to drunken enemies. In my view, the balance was a little too one-sided. Without the riveting fireworks, cracks in the play's structure, notably its unrealistic timeline, seem irksome. In addition to the core brother battles, Mr. Shepard added additional colors to his play. Rough Old West frontier survival meets the New West, notably one with the charms of a seductive, vapid, and commercialized Hollywood. As for this playwright, I may not yet have found a production that lives up to its reputation. The Fool for Love Broadway revival a few years ago was clearly not helpful. I remain hopeful that I get to see a great production of a Sham Shepherd play, maybe an outstanding version of the Pulitzer Prize winning Buried Child or Curse of the Starving Class. So far, though, I feel like I'm 0 for 2. Now for a much, much better production of a play on Broadway, we'll talk about American Son. One afternoon, I went to the New York Historical Society to see two excellent exhibits that were closing that weekend. One was entitled Harry Potter, A History of Magic, and the other was Billie Jean King, The Road to 75. I had the time to see another one that is running until March. It was titled Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow. It's a chronological study which explores 50 years of struggle for racial equality and full citizenship throughout America for former African-American slaves and their descendants. The same night I went to the New York Historical Society, I saw Kerry Washington deliver a magnificent performance in American Son, a play which takes place now, a century later than that exhibit I saw. Both the exhibit and this play address the systemic issues facing a minority group and their white overlords. The exhibit was arranged to coincide with the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment, which dealt with citizenship rights, equal protection, and due process. From that monumental 1868 moment, what followed in America included no jury lynchings, voter suppression, such as the use of poll taxes and violence, minstrel shows, the erection of Confederate monuments, and the inevitable massive migration northward. Centuries and centuries and centuries of oppression and strife. American Sun takes place at a police station lobby in Miami slightly after 4 o'clock in the early morning hours. Kendra is losing patience waiting for information about her 18-year-old son. He did not return home that evening after the two of them had a fight. She is a psychology professor at a university, and her estranged husband works for the FBI. They live amidst privilege. Their son has been accepted to West Point after high school. The white, lunkish cop on duty, played by Jeremy Jordan, is not very helpful. After begging, she does learn that her son's car had been pulled over and there is currently an active investigation. As the mother of a black man in America today, all her nightmare scenarios percolate in her panicked state. As Kendra, Ms. Washington spends nearly the entire 90 minutes of this play on stage with three men, her husband, the officer, and a higher-ranking lieutenant. Rather than tiptoe through this combustible material, 
playwright Christopher Damos Brown covers the expected divide, which has manifested itself with the shocking chasm between hashtag Black Lives Matter and hashtag Blue Lives Matter. Within this context, how do you raise an African-American son? The issue of appearance and behavior is a major focus of this story. Kendra's son has started wearing cornrows and baggy clothing. A hundred years ago, society forced black people to walk on the correct side of the street. In my lifetime, they were supposed to drink out of only colored water fountains. Currently, white supremacists are marching openly in the South, carrying Confederate flags and wearing swastikas. I found myself thinking, are the presumably real risks of dress code and appearance a continuing part of our long, sad, pendulum-swinging attempt at reconstruction? American Sun does tend to slather the drama a bit thickly at times in trying to hit so many slights and targets. The officer mentioned that he's keeping the natives at bay while trying to stop Kendra going from zero to ghetto. The audience gasps in outraged recognition, but the effect is slightly sophomoric. In possibly the most over-the-top line, her husband says, Today it's cornrows. Tomorrow he'll be helping O.J. find the real killer. The excess sludge notwithstanding, the play is memorably theatrical. All the performers do fine work here, including Stephen Pasquale and Eugene Lee. Most impressive about this piece, however, is the attempt to provide a framework for discussing race, racism, and our country's criminal legal system. For sure, the audience for American Son will be confronted with the never-ending plight African Americans face on a daily basis. This world is complicated, and these characters are imperfect people, as we all are. After the play's memorable ending, I was not sure anything was truly resolved, mirroring the world in which we live. For that reason, this play is essential viewing with a powerhouse Ms. Washington, an ideal guide to help us move this particular conversation forward. American Son and this Broadway cast will be shown on Netflix. After its final performance, which was played on January 27th, American Son will be taped without an audience. This topical work is deserving of a wide viewership. Make plans to check it out. As I'm going through this month's entries, I'm realizing, wow, I saw a lot of experimental new stuff. This time, I went to someplace I had never been before, the MX Gallery, and the production was Slash. I received a tip about Slash and decided to do a little research. I quickly learned that Vogue wrote a story about this play and its audience. Brilliantly, not only are boldface names showing up, but also, and I'm quoting here, a few adorably sulky teenage hipsters, a clutch of serious New York theater impresarios, and a number of confused millennials, unquote. Bingo. Off I go to the fifth floor Chinatown walk-up MX Gallery for a piece described online as scavenged from the fandoms of Star Trek, Sherlock, The Beatles, and beyond, Slash guides the audience through an infernal fantasia of perverted intertextuality. Essentially, this piece is derived from the Slash subgenre of fan fiction, 
where characters are appropriated and written by fans for fans into other stories. Slash fiction, hugely popular in China, depicts male romantic pairings ranging from bromances to more highly sexualized relationships. This subgenre is primarily written and consumed by young women. Emily Allen and Leah Hennessy are the creators and stars of this play. This is their first full-length production, and the room was packed with about 100 people the evening I attended. As the dark-haired one, Ms. Hennessy begins the performance brushing her wig and repeating these lines as if into a mirror. I am beautiful. I am sexy. I am fashionable. I am a brunette. Eventually, the blonde comes in and she's in a funk. Riverdale High has gone on too long and both Betty and Veronica are tired of fighting over Archie. They decide to do some cosplay featuring homoerotic straight men, their favorite game. A scene with Dr. Spock and Captain Kirk culminates into the following exchange. Would it be insane if I kissed you? Yes, to anyone except you. Other, less well-known couplings follow, including Morrissey and Johnny Marr. One of the funniest reimaginations involves Sherlock Holmes, a young wizard who is highly functional, drug-addicted sociopath. In this show, skits also feature female pairings from Wonder Woman and Catwoman to a riff on a 1992 CNBC talk live conversation between Susan Sontag and Camille Paglia. Musical interludes are also thrown into the blender, including Communist Do, a song snippet performed by Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin to the tune of Jellicle Cats from the musical Cats. Communist Do. An incestuous Ivanka Trump arrives with her porn star sister Tiffany and screams at the top of her lungs, quote, Dad knows I'm now a big fucking Jew, unquote. If slash fiction is generally all over the map, then this might be a faithful roasting of the genre. Since fan fiction is about fans writing for fans, what happens when you don't know who certain people are? In variety show style, the creators cover a wide assortment of, mostly, much older celebrities. I know who Brian Eno is, but will everyone? I guess it really doesn't matter, because that section with David Bowie was boring, even if familiar. Admittedly, I did laugh a few times, and the conceit for Slash is promising, if currently it's overstuffed. This festival has been selected for the public theaters under the Radar Festival next January in 2020. My suggestions. Further sharpening the characterizations. Rethinking, or at least reworking, the musical interludes and perhaps adding a hilarious speech or two about this subgenre from a fan or psychologist's perspective. As of now, this show does not generate enough laughs to sustain 90 minutes of satire that a larger audience may, or may not, really know or care about. I know Vogue said it's fast and campy, and as clever as anything the New York stage has seen in some time. Don't believe them. There was not nearly enough laughter coming from the often stone-faced, sitting very still audience. In a world with no men, this show asked about a kiss. What does safe taste like? 
more of that wit would be most, most welcome. Next, the off-off-Broadway play, Barefoot. The sound of rain accompanies Tom Petty's song, You Got Lucky, at the start of Barefoot. Good love is hard to find, informs the spirit of this comedy, which describes itself as a daring new sexual escapade. The door opens to a West Village townhouse, and Sylvia enters, played by Kate T. Billingsley. Obviously wet and with her mascara smearing, she flicks off her shoes. After all, the sign by the door says this is a barefoot house. Sylvia makes a beeline for the Grey Goose bottle and chugs. She's seemingly very upset and screams into the couch pillow. A knock at the door follows. Miss Billingsley is both the star and co-author of this wildly raucous 21st century drawing room comedy. She seems to be channeling a spoiled, ill-tempered, boozy, foul-mouthed Catherine Hepburn. There's more than a whiff of it's going to be a bumpy night Betty Davis feel to this setup. When Sylvia answers the door, her soon-to-be husband's mistress, Teddy, comes in. Teddy's played by Alyssa Clee. Also wet, she's apologizing for, essentially, being a slut. Sylvia gives her silk pajamas to wear while drying off, which enables Teddy to open her bra, announcing, Here's my tits. The reply? They're big. Eventually, Teddy becomes uncomfortable with all the intimate details being discussed. Sylvia's quip? We already share a penis. What's the problem? This is the sort of farce that requires a complete suspension of disbelief. After a far too long scene between these two, the fiancé and Teddy's boyfriend arrive. Now the sparks are set to fly. Why all the heightened tensions? The wedding between Sylvia and Robert is only two weeks away, and the gifts are already piled high. In a drawing room comedy a century ago, perhaps the story would involve flirting or a stolen kiss. Updated for the much franker sexual politics of 2019, Sylvia describes her beau Robert as a man with homosexual tendencies and tiny calves. In the intimate off-off-Broadway Gene Frankel Theater, there are many laughs to be had in this play, which has been directed and co-written by Thomas G. Waits. The four principal characters poke at each other, and when there is a direct hit, the humor is very funny indeed. Another door knock occurs. The pizza man arrives, portrayed by a very amusing Trent Cox. And this is where the farce nears its peak. If every performance landed on broader caricatures, the result might further amplify the lunacy. Barefoot came into this intimate theater produced by Black Rose Productions as a late replacement for another play. As I understand, about two weeks before, an unfinished play was finished and staged for this production. With another swig or two of vodka, these actors might chew the scenery even louder. This brassy comedy might then be able to turn the corner from chuckle-inducing to hilarious. The Convent is the next play I want to discuss. The Convent ends with an oddly tacked-on yet stirring coda. Until that moment, this play takes place in a medieval convent in the south of France. The time is the present. This location is home to a spiritual retreat for women. They come to heal, to learn, 
and even to ingest a hallucinogenic to facilitate discovery and sharing. When the ladies arrive, they pick a card in order to choose a gnomon. Historical female medieval figures such as Claire of Assisi and Teresa of Avila will be their personalized guides on this journey. Mother Abbess encourages her crusaders to let their selected spiritual leaders teach them how to repair their lives. Over meals, these women share their thoughts and aspirations. There are games intended to help them find their way to heal or to grow. More than one of the women have unresolved traumas involving their mother. The convent is designed to be a safe space for diving deeply into oneself in order to emerge rehabilitated. While religion and medieval cloisters are clearly this retreat's physical inspiration, the contemplative mysticism is the central driving force. The plot revolves around six women, some of whom have been here before. Archetypes are standard, such as the bad girl and the shy one. Relationship form, tension is merged between characters, Mother Abbess pushes them too hard to find their individuality within their own souls, not using anyone else's definition. This play does not unfold organically, and the plot twist seems slightly overwrought in order to create a major story arc. Frankly, I often disengaged in this material, but then found myself pulled in and continually intrigued by this production. In Roll Abrego's excellent set design, stone walls had Gothic windows on both ends of the stage. In the center, the space easily morphed from an outside garden to a dining hall. Catherine Freer's multi-layered projection design added both symbolic religious imagery and vast landscapes signifying remoteness. Directed by Daniel Talbot, this so-so play has been presented in an exceptionally fine and fluid production. Every actress was memorable. As spiritual guru Mother Abbess, Wendy Van Den Heuvel weaves a fascinating combination of ferocious feminist and spectral goddess. Patty was the character I most identified with as the aggressively cynical non-believer. Samantha Sole's performance beautifully balanced complicated and unresolved external and internal conflicts as the convent reached its coda. What is the job of a woman? In a breathtaking final monologue, a modern-day mystic in a New York City subway station answers that question. I imagine playwright Jessica Dickey hopes women will hear her plea loud and clear. For the final new entry this month, the Transport Group's revival of The Trial of the Catonsville Nine. In 1968, nine people walked into the draft board in Catonsville, Maryland, and took 378 files of young men. These records were incinerated in the parking lot with homemade napalm, the incendiary used extensively by the United States military in Vietnam. These nine Catholic priests and nuns felt their Christian morals required them to act on what they believed regardless of the personal cost. They were arrested. The Trial of the Catonsville Nine is a 1971 play by Daniel Berrigan, one of the participants in this historic act of civil disobedience. After this incident, the Catonsville Nine issued a statement. We confront the Roman Catholic Church, other Christian bodies, and the synagogues of America with their silence and cowardice in the face of our country's crimes. We are convinced that the religious bureaucracy in this country is racist, is an accomplice in this war, and is hostile to the poor. The significance of this event 
help shape the opposition to the Vietnam War away from street protests to repeated acts of disobedience. Father Berrigan and his brother Philip were later featured on the cover of Time magazine. The transcripts of the trial are the basis for this work. These activists were protesting the war's legality, the forced shipment of thousands of young Americans to their deaths, and the slaughtering of innocent people. Is the burning of paper a crime, but not the burning of children with these horrible weapons of mass destruction? Saving lives may have been their primary motivation. Criticizing a society's complicity was the big target. Were all of these people in Vietnam villages communists? Why is America helping to overthrow governments in Asia, Africa, and Latin America? At what point might this aggressive foreign policy become our domestic policy? Adapted and directed by Jack Cummings III, this play is brimming with thoughtful discussions about morality and government. Was this war genocide? Do we use military strength solely to further our economic and business interests? Should lawyers and judges have a moral compass while interpreting the law? Why were privileged young men given deferments disproportionately to the poorer and less advantaged? In this staging, the play has been modified from an 11-person cast to just three who share all the roles. This production is performed on stage, with the audience sitting in pews on four sides. Period memorabilia is scattered on the desks. When the three Asian actors enter and begin looking at newspaper clippings, we join them in our reconsideration of history. The trial of the Catonsville Nine is now a memory play at a time of potentially catastrophic moral ambivalence in America. David Hoon, Mia Katibak, and Eunice Huang keep us riveted to the words and thoughts of this time, effortlessly switching from judge to defendant. As can be expected in a production by the Transport Group, the creative team has beautifully designed this environment to let the uneasy mood linger as the dramatic story soars. The recurring superlative quality and artistic variety produced by this theater company is peerless on any New York stage right now. Feel free to attend the trial of the Catonsville Nine, even if your bone spur is acting up a little bit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month is going to be a busy schedule as well. To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge in two monologues at the Public Theater, Seawall slash A Life. And I'm looking forward to the author of last season's outstanding play, Fairview, Jack Lee Sibley's Drury's new production, which is going to be Mary Seacole at the Lincoln Center in the Third Theater, LCT3. Speaking of tips, Fairview is going to get an encore presentation in Brooklyn this June, a theater for a new audience, and well worth your time and energy. It's a very, very interesting play. As well, Be More Chill is transferring from Off-Broadway to Broadway this month and uh, is a musical worth uh, checking out. Uh, another one that is coming to Broadway, though, I really, really disliked, although I was very much in the critical minority here, um, but I really disliked the revival of Oklahoma that's moving to uh, Broadway uh, next month. All of those reviews can be searched on the website. Uh, if you'd like to hear what my thoughts were about them, www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register for receive up-to-date emails for all new posts as they're added. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, 
please send an email to theaterreviewsformyseat at comcast.net. Thank you for listening and enjoy your theater going.